Today is Ascension Sunday. Ascension Day was actually Thursday. As I said during the children's sermon, that Jesus, after he had been raised from the dead on Easter, he taught the disciples for 40 days, a significant number. Just like God had been instructing Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days and he was receiving the Ten Commandments, so Jesus was instructing the disciples for 40 days. And on the 50th day would be Pentecost. And the celebration in life and the worship life of the church ascension sometimes gets lost. Between all the great celebrations of Easter and coming just a week before Pentecost, the birthday of the church, ascension sometimes gets lost. And it's the ascension day doesn't even fall on a Sunday. And sometimes we kind of just skip over it. But ponder for a moment the fact that in the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, or many other creeds for that matter, the, the most condensed statement of the essentials of the faith that the church could put together, the ascension is mentioned in each of them. But I would suggest to you that the ascension is perhaps not only the least celebrated, but the most misunderstood of all of the various Holy special days in the life of the church. As you hear the story, you'll hear part of the misunderstanding that was prominent in the first century. And we have a different set of misunderstandings that get in our way in, in our day and time. But here the story of the ascension is recorded in, uh, actually it's a misprint. It's not in Luke's gospel. It's in, well, it is the end of Luke's gospel, but this lesson is not in Luke, it's Acts 1, 1-11. In the first book, the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While saying with them, he ordered them not to, leave Jerusalem, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by him. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of life. The, did, did you hear the misunderstanding in the story in its original context? 
after three years of being with Jesus and everybody saying, goody, 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 he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to come and kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom. And after being eyewitnesses of the events of Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, and receiving 40 days more special instruction from the risen Lord, they still can't get that one track idea out of their head. Lord, is this it? Is this the time where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were so fixated on the idea that if Jesus was going to be the Messiah, he must then fulfill their national aspirations to kick out the Romans and restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. And Jesus gives them a general review. It's not up to you to know these things that God alone has affixed. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says that instead of a renewal which would form them as the restored Israel, waiting for God to become their king, as so many Jews of the day had hoped, they would experience a renewal which would form them as the restored humanity, celebrating the fact that God was becoming king of the whole world, not just of Israel. And knowing that knowing that as a result inside their own selves, because of the transformation, the restoration that was happening by the power of the Holy Spirit, within them, that would be their proof that God was restoring a fallen humanity, not just a fallen Israel. Wright goes on to say that this is the very heart of the spirituality and indeed the theology of the Acts of the Apostles. God is at work to do a new thing in the whole world. The focus is being shifted. Instead of restoring the power of a nation, a chosen people, and forget about the rest of the world, God has got much bigger plans in mind. In the power of the Holy Spirit, God is not just restoring a nationalistic agenda, make Israel great again. Instead, God is restoring all of humanity. And they know it because it's happening within their own hearts and lives. The whole agenda has been shifted, has been changed. That was why the disciples had a hard time understanding the ascension. We have a different set of problems that get in the way of us understanding the ascension. And it has to do with the difference in the worldview between the Greek worldview, the worldviews of Greek philosophy, and the Hebrew worldview that is contained in the Bible and in both Old and New Testaments. They're different. And we live out of one and therefore misunderstand the other. A three-minute survey of Greek philosophy. We have the Platonic view, going back to Plato, that says that the material world is bad. Everything you see in the material world is an imperfect rendering of the ideal world. And what's in the material world is bad because, I mean, have you looked in a mirror as you get older? 
stuff decays and it's not perfect and it dies. Therefore, the goal of life is to somehow escape this imperfect material world and instead go to the perfect world of pure ideas, what Plato called the world of the forms. So the goal of life is that the world is bad and the goal of life is to escape this world to go to some other perfect place. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That's the common view of the Christian life held by most people because the Platonic Greek worldview crept into medieval theology of the church and was never really left. Many people today will tell you or just on their gut level assume that the goal of the Christian life is to get your ticket punched so that when you die, you will escape this fallen world and go to heaven when you die. That's Plato. I'm sorry, it's not Jesus, it's Plato. Or the Epicurean view. This was a whole school of Greek philosophers, going back to Epicurus, who had the idea that gods, the gods, the Greeks were pantheists, uh, they're kind of aloof from the events of this world. They, they, they created the world that we know, but then kind of checked out and are doing their own thing. Does that sound, that's the very principle of deism, the philosophy of the enlightenment that Thomas Jefferson and many other founding fathers of this country had. The, the clockmaker God who created it all, wound it up, and then stands back in a hands-off sort of way. And this is the worldview upon which modern Western empirical science is built. In the clash of worldviews, the Greeks have won. And we have abandoned, or never knew, what the Hebrew worldview is all about. And from operating from this understanding, we'll never understand what the ascension is all about. Consider instead the Greek or the Hebrew worldview with just a few examples from Genesis. Just one book. As opposed to the material world being bad, go back to the creation stories of Genesis 1. And on this day, God created this and said, it's good. And the next day, God created something else and said, Throughout the six days of creation. The material world is God's good creation. Yes, it exists now in a fallen state, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. It means that it needs to be restored and renewed. Consider the Genesis 3 story where talking about the fall. When Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit and they're feeling guilty so they're hiding from God. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the evening to converse with the man and the woman. That's a far cry from the the deist view or the Epicurean view that, you know, the gods may have created the world, but then it's hands off. They have nothing to do. They don't really care. They're all, no, God desires intimate communion with his creatures, especially with human beings. The idea that I guess comes off from the Platonic view that heaven is someplace far removed from this world that we know. And the goal is to escape this world. Scotty, beam me up. Contrast that with the ideas, that the, the images you get from uh, the Tower of Babel. You know the story. The people decided that they wanted to be like God and that 
that heaven was so near, if they just built a big enough tower, by golly, we can, we can storm the gates of heaven and be like God. So God sent an angel to confuse the languages, to prevent it from happening. Happening. To get the sense that heaven and earth are much closer than we ordinarily think. Or the same story in Jacob's ladder. When you got angels, angels got wings, don't they? But instead of using the wings, they just, you know, it's just a little stairway, a little ladder. That's all that's necessary to get from heaven to earth. And that they're going up and down, back and forth all the time because heaven and earth are so much closer than we would ordinarily presume. Putting the Genesis stories to the side for a moment, consider just two options from the New Testament. Virtually every week we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Earth is not being abandoned to destruction while we we go to the lifeboats to take us to heaven. We're praying for the kingdom to come here on earth in the same way that God is currently ruling in heaven. Or spoiler alert, go to the end of the, the book in Revelation in chapter 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is amongst mortals. Heaven coming down to earth. Earth and heaven being reunited again. This understanding is key to understand what's really going on in the ascension. This is one artist's rendering of the event. You've got the disciples down at the side, Jesus in the clouds, and the two angels rebuking them. Hey, why do you stand there looking up in the clouds? There is another more famous painting by Raphael that is, looks awful similar, doesn't it? And yet the subject of the painting is not the ascension, but the transfiguration. You have Peter and James and John and Moses and Elijah and Jesus up in the clouds. Could it be this up in the clouds language, which is the same in both stories, is not so much about spatial distance, but just a metaphor for Jesus being in the presence of God in a way that we, as of yet, cannot be. That ascension is not necessarily so much Jesus Going to a far, on, on, how does the Star Wars beginning going on distance galaxy far, far and away? That's, that's not what the Ascension story is about. Instead, it's much more like in, in Celtic spirituality, the spirituality of Ireland and Scotland, they talk about thin places, places where the veil that separates heaven and earth is very, very thin and we can begin to see what's on the other side of the veil. I think that's what the story of the Ascension is talking about. Not about Jesus escaping to a galaxy far, far away and leaving the promise, you know, to check, check at the uh, desk and you'll get your ticket too. That's not what it's about. The Ascension is about at, after the 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus giving the disciples their marching orders and then saying, I'm going to be with you in a different way from now on. I am no longer 
as one who has experienced resurrection, who has conquered sin and death forever, I'm no longer bound by time and place. He's already shown that in the resurrection stories. He, he has a sort of physical body because he eats. And he says, hey, check it out, touch me. But at the same time, he seems to appear and disappear at will and walk through locked doors. So he's entering into a different kind of reality, but not necessarily one that's completely separated from this world. By going to be with the Father in the mode that he now is, he is available to be with all people in all times and places, not just in Jerusalem. A week before last, I was at a spiritual retreat with the upper room, and one of the, one of the speakers there was talking about how in all the psalms that you can think of, the temple theology, the temple was the place where, remember, in the Holy of Holies, God dwelt, literally, physically present. And that was no longer the case after the Babylonian conquest. I think what the ascension is saying is that Jesus is the new temple. Jesus, God has left the temple. The te- God is no longer bound in the Holy of Holies. And now in the ascension, this, this metaphorical language is saying that God can dwell with God's people everywhere. And that we no longer have to go to Jerusalem to the temple to be in the presence of the Lord. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, dwells with his people throughout the whole world. And I think you see that in the instructions that he gave the disciples. After say, is this it? Is this the time? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And Jesus says, no. Not going to do that that way. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. People who bear testimony to what you've experienced and seen in your own life. Not, not ideas or head trips. My witnesses. In Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. No longer confined to the temple precincts in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What would these be for us today? Well, Jerusalem is where they were standing at the time. Jerusalem is where the temple was. You will be my witnesses in the church, I think he would say to us. So was Judea. Judea was the country in which they lived. Judea, you will be my witnesses where you work, in your neighborhood, in your schools, in your places where you gather socially with other folks, in your world outside the church, you will be my witnesses. Where was Samaria? That was their neighbor to the north. The Samaritans were the folks. You know, there's no feud like a family feud. The Samaritans were the distant cousins of the Jews. who, because of their differences and their history, could not stand each other's guts. So I think Jesus is saying to them and to us, and you will be my witnesses 
with the people that you find really hard to be with. With the people you would left your own devices find really hard to love or to care about. Now you fill in the blank of who that is for you. People of a different nationality, different race, different political philosophy, different culture. Whoever it is that you would be left to your own devices inclined to exclude from the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, no, you're especially to be my witnesses to those very people. Because I'm about reconciling the world, which means reconciling you with the people who you just can't stand their guts. You hate their guts. Be that as it may, if you're going to be my witness, you've got to go to them even to the ends of the earth. And so this scene, I, I suggest you as a metaphor of Jesus changing his modes of being from physical, incarnate, in the world, limited as we are by time and space. And the temple being Temple 2.0, Temple 1.0 was located in a place the temple, a temple is just the dwelling place of God. Now the temple 2.0 is Jesus, who in this new way of being is not limited by time and space. And is available to all times and all people. And the whole world becomes a thin place where heaven and earth are overlapping. And yet the angels have to show up and chastise them. Men of Galilee, why are you stand looking up towards heaven? Stand there with your feet from the planet's slack jaw going, glory, where'd he go? You know, there are some people of whom it has been said that they are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Jesus has given us some specific instructions. He said, the angels remind them, this Jesus whom you saw going into heaven will return to you in the same way. He's not done. He is coming back. And I would suggest that his coming back is not just at the end of the time, but through the Holy Spirit is a continuing process of coming back. And Jesus told us that we are a colony of heaven on earth. And our commission is to invite other people, other earthbound mortals, into that colony of heaven. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, even in Samaria, all the ways to the end of the earth. Because that's what God is doing. That's what God is about. And if we want to be where God is, that's what we need to be doing too. As St. Teresa of Avila, a 14th century or 16th century saint, prayed, out of love, Help us to remember that Christ has no body now on earth but ours. No hands but ours, no feet but ours. Ours are the eyes to see the needs of the world. Ours are the hands which, with which to bless everyone now. Ours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. I think this is the ascension as it was meant to be understood when we get the Greek philosophy worldview out of the way. And I think it's one of the most important celebrations of the Christian year. Thanks.